Who is your favorite author? For my kids and even myself right now, we've read some great fiction books that we've come to really enjoy. We have finished the Wingfeather Saga by Andrew Peterson, which was fantastic. If you have kids, you ought to read that to them. It's great. Well, we're also now in the second book of a series called The Green Ember by S.D. Smith. And what I love about both of these series so far, both are, are written by Christian writers, they, they masterfully weave together intriguing and suspenseful narratives, and they do a great job at, at leading from one to the other and showing both the great virtues that are in people as well as the great treachery which is in people, all the while making stories about redemption and sacrifice. That There's brilliant fiction pieces that you can read <clears throat> out there. Uh, time would fail to mention some of them. Um, and even though these might be worth all the time and the money or the energy it, uh, it costs to read, nothing really compares to the narrative portions of the Bible. This is because they are narratives about our history. They're, they're narratives, they're stories about our redemption. And so they hold a specific and wonderful value to us. And what we notice here in Luke is that he does a masterful job at weaving together stories that carry along the theme that he wants to communicate <clears throat> if you see it clearly. If you don't see it clearly, it can feel like a disjointed story. You're like, how do these things go together? Hopefully, it's becoming clear at this point what the purpose and importance is um, in the writing that we're going over in Luke by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> One thing that we see here in this last section, which I think is captured beautifully in verse 25, the last story. <clears throat> Sometimes, uh, put it this way, the, the technical term that all the commentators use is pericope. It's just like that contained section, the story. So you have from uh, chapter 8, verse 9, all the way to 25, that's, a, that's one enclosed story. And then you move to the next one. When you get those two, a good author will a lot of times summarize with the last statement or the first statement. He'll sort of put bookends and there'll be a glue that holds it together. And that's the theme of the whole book. And what you have here is a, a beautiful capturing of this. Luke is a master at telling you, well, why did I write that story? I, I don't know about you, but it would be really, really hard for me to go, obviously he's guided by the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless, he still has to put together what stories should I choose? I imagine there's many other things that could be written in the New Testament church as to what it is <clears throat> that communicates the story. But here in verse 25, we read, now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, that is the apostles, the two, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So what we had seen previously is that the Lord had sovereignly, the Lord Jesus in the first chapter had sovereignly promised that the, the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, that region, and then to the ends of the earth. And here we have the carrying out of that. The Samaritans had received the gospel. They had given, been given the sign of their inclusion in the body by the Spirit. They have the Spirit of Christ in them, so they're part of His body. And now the apostles are preaching that. And then what do you know? The next thing that we see is somebody who is a non-Jew at all. He's a complete foreigner to Israel. It's an Ethiopian, a eunuch, somebody who is in that category of the nations. So this is the gospel going forth to the nations as God has promised. <clears throat> and what we see in the beginning here, let's just, we'll read these 
um, one section at a time because there's there's lots to cover, but I want to skip over lots too. So if you want more detailed questions, you can ask me later. Uh, we were trying to focus on the main thing. Now, verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go s- toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come into Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now in verse 26, he has an encounter with an angel. We don't have very many, I don't know anybody who can tell a story like this legitimately, where somebody has actually encountered uh, an angelic being in their presence and has spoken or received instruction from one. But we shouldn't consider these things to be normative in our time anyways, if you've understood Acts chapter 2. But I should clarify that there are angelic beings present uh, even now, according to Hebrews chapter 12, in our midst. They're gathered here with us to worship the Lord as it were. And there are demonic uh, uh, angels, as it were, in operation in the world. However, our common experience of that is a little bit more invisible and not so in your face as it is in Acts. We ought to know also that God... Why does an angel show up is the question. God has a designed purpose for angels which accord with their nature. Let me just remind you of two verses which uh, you may or may not know off the top of your head. Hebrews asks a bunch of questions in the beginning, but it says to, to the angel or to to um, did he ever say to the angels and there's a discussion about angels but he expects a yes answer when he asks this question about the role and the function of angels are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of of those who are to inherit salvation rhetorical answer yes they are our servants for our salvation David also in Psalm 103, 20 and 21 exhorts or calls the angels to bless the Lord. Bless Yahweh, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, his ministers who do his will. In the present circumstance, the reason we see an angel is the angel has been sent to do what these other scriptures affirm. They have been sent out to to. Uh, serve for the salvation specifically of this Ethiopian eunuch and very likely those who follow in his wake. Now, he also calls out in verse 26 that they are in a desert place. Of course, this comes because Philip may not know exactly where he's going other than this road, and here's an indicator. That's one. And then the second part is Luke is setting you up to encounter baptism. There's no water in a desert place, and then there's water in a baptism. We'll cover that next week. But then this man, the Ethiopian eunuch, actually gets significant attention. There's a lot described of him. A lot of times we'll just have a guy's name, and then that's it. And here, there is plenty of things. You have his country, his current ruler, his role is, is named, and then specifically it's told what he does even even briefly. <clears throat> and from these, we see that he is a high official in his kingdom in Ethiopia. And he is a type of treasurer. He's over the treasure. Ga- Gaza, I found this to be interesting. Gaza means treasure. There's some play on words here that I haven't teased out. But he is over Candace's wealth. And he a- apparently has an approved leave and to go worship God in another place. He, he has travel leave, and we gather that he must have, therefore, also trust in the kingdom. <clears throat> we, we also note, despite or in light of this man's position, that at this current time, he is not a follower of Christ Jesus. He has not heard the gospel yet. Christ has come. He has been 
crucified and resurrected. And he is a religious man following the Old Testament, but he is not yet a believer in its, in its final form, what we'll see. But in his religious travelings, he's probably gathering for a big feast or festival, whatever time of year it is. And he's traveling a long distance from wherever it is in Ethiopia. We're not sure the exact location, but generally, if it's from Ethiopia today to Jerusalem, you have about 4,500 plus miles, 4,500 miles. If you do that in a car today on paved roads, that's 86 hours without traffic. So this, this man in a chariot, probably not all paved roads, is going very slow and a long time to go worship the Lord. And, and what is striking as a proselyte would be, and especially a eunuch, is that he would have um, been prohibited from the full worship of God in the temple. We'll talk about that here in a minute. One other thing to note is he is reading a, a scroll from Isaiah. <clears throat> now, for us, it's really hard for us to imagine a time where the Bible wasn't just readily accessible literally everywhere. It's, it's hard for us to imagine that. But this is to have a personal copy of the scriptures is something that would cost you because you'd have to pay for the labor of a copyist. It would be a handwritten copy by somebody who spent lots of time and was approved to do so. Lots of times it was an official position at this point because he has a, a copy of Isaiah. The New Testament will be copied in a different way, more voluminous, less regulated, very, very um, great stuff that we could talk about later. But this is before the printing press. And this is even before Christians. I don't know if you know this, but the form of books that you have today, we call them a codex. This is a book. Christians did that. <laughs> they, they sent the, the gospels and things together in book format. That was never done before. It was always on a scroll. And so this man has a, a scroll that you unroll and close up and unroll. And, and it's way harder to navigate going back and forth. <clears throat> and this man is is reading this scroll, as it were, either in Hebrew or in Greek. Hebrew, you know, is what Isaiah would have written in. He was a Hebrew. However, in Jesus' time, about two centuries before Jesus' time, there was a, a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. Lock it in your mind. I'm going to start saying Septuagint. I've said it a bunch of times, but I don't want to define it every time I say it. Okay, so Septuagint, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was very, uh, was ubiquitous. It was everywhere um, for the early church. And so I I think it's likely, especially because the quotation you'll notice is different here in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament, because this is coming directly from the Septuagint word for word. Now that may be Luke, um, but I, I... presume that's what the Ethiopian had as being a Gentile and not being a Hebrew, unless he also is so religious that he paid for training to learn Hebrew and be able to read it for himself. Such dedication, if that is the case. Well, enough time is spent on that, but you need to know the situation because this is a very stunning thing. Um, and I hope to unpack it through the rest of the sermon. That is, this, this eunuch traveling to Jerusalem has not heard the message of Jesus Christ. And he is going to the, the center of the worship of Israel from which he doesn't participate in the same fashion as you would if you were in Jerusalem or in Israel, but in a different country. Now, at this time, he would have been forbidden from being in the temple. Deuteronomy 23.1, and just for our children, I'd be discreet and just say eunuch and let you handle that conversation if you'd like. Eunuchs are said to have, uh, in 23.1, they shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Most likely, he would have been relegated to the court of the Gentiles or maybe even stricter into a synagogue. He couldn't even go in the temple 
district, as it were. Regardless, he, out of his zeal as a convert, wants to go and worship God in the place where his, the old temple system is. Now, you remember, this book is about a new temple that has come. The old temple system, he can never, ever participate. Never. But there is a fulfillment that has happened. And so hopefully, I want to see that. <clears throat> I want you to see that here today. Now, before we get into this section, I just want to say, um, I am going to be very sparing in my comments in 29 and 30. I want to read from 29 through 30. Well, yeah, 29 through... 30. And if you want more conversation about the Spirit directing us today, we can talk about that extensively later. For now, let me just make the comments that are necessary. At first, it was the angel. Now, in verse 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join the chariot, or this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, this section is, is amazing, but what we see is it's brief, it's small, and as Trinitarians, we take it for granted. But we need to notice that it is the Spirit who speaks to Philip and gives him his direction um, why this is important, we take for granted, but there are many cults and those who are heretics who deny the doctrine of the Trinity. But here, though it's small, it's so important to recognize that this is a testimony to the d divine nature and personhood of the Holy Spirit. Forces, as maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses say, are impersonal. They, they don't speak Yet here, the Holy Spirit is personal. He acts. He himself speaks to another. It distinguishes him from the person itself. <clears throat> but we understand uh, this, of course, not apart from the doctrine of God being one God, though existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three persons in the Godhead. And yet there is one God. So this is the spirit of God, we could say. But it is not like an active force, as it were. It's the Holy Spirit who is a participant in the one true God. <clears throat> this is the historic doctrine of the Trinity denied by oneness Pentecostals who teach uh, tri tritheism. And we could also say... Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity and the personhood of the Spirit. <clears throat> so that's just a brief testimony, but be watching for it because it comes up a lot in Acts and is very important to defend the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Philip, in response, obeys and runs over. How is he going to enter? It's really neat because he just goes and strikes up a conversation, and the way that he actually fulfills the command is the invitation given by the other person <laughs> he doesn't just hop in but the the guy who he strikes up a conversation with has him uh, ask or ask him to come up and therefore fulfilling what the spirit told him more on that maybe on another time <clears throat> but what i want to do from here on out is cover the gospel according to isaiah isaiah preached the gospel and what I want to do is cover Isaiah. I want to cover this text here and point out some things. And then I just want to go back to Isaiah and lay it out in chapter 53 and then 56. So we'll read those sections and, and I'll tell you when. But essentially, I want you to hear it in a manner that is consistent with Acts and the rest of the New Testament and just hear it from Isaiah. Uh, so pretend in our the rest of the sermon today that I am Philip, you're the eunuch. And that's how this is going to go. So first, <clears throat> let us just have this section in mind because there's a couple important things. 
verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So, before we turn back, we need to recognize that in verse 34, the eunuch does ask a great question. He recognizes that it's, it's a prophecy. He's just not sure if Isaiah is saying about what's to come in his future. If you uh, know where Isaiah is and the end of it, it gets kind of bad. <laughs> they get uh, taken away into exile. That's, that's what is in, in anticipation. So he's like, okay, is this Isaiah? Or is it someone else? And so this is also instructive for us because we're asking, well, who's the subject of this humiliation that's here? Who's going to receive this kind of injustice? And Luke recording this for us is really a great help to us because this is the same manner in which all the prophecies so so far of Acts have been interpreted. It's the same pattern. I I want you in your mind to consider Acts chapter 2. We we don't have to turn there, but for you, it should be a paradigm. That means this is going to happen again and again and again. This, in fact, is how you're taught to interpret the Old Testament. A mistake that a lot of people make is, is, is saying that only the apostles can do this. No, no, no. It's a hermeneutical grid. It's, It's the art of interpretation. They're telling you, how to read the Old Testament. And what is happening in Acts chapter 2, as well as many other places, is there are prophetic words in the Old Testament from Joel chapter 2, from Psalm 16, Psalm 110. That's a sample that you get in Acts chapter 2. Joel, obviously, is from the Minor Prophets. Uh, Psalm, uh, the two Psalms that are there from the Psalter, of course, written by David. And to Joel, and to David, and also now to Isaiah, all of them, if you want to picture this in a linear way, all of them were standing here and prophesying forward to a future time. And when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers are living in light of the fulfillment. It already happened. It happened in Christ. So it was future only to the ones who were writing it. And then as we come on the scene, especially 2,000 years later, most of the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in our past, even though they're future to Isaiah, future to Joel, because that's what they say. And so we're going to see how this is fulfilled. Of course, this is Isaiah 53, very, very famous I don't even have to uh, say the re- I could just start reading it and you go, I know where that is because it's that popular. So this, this is easy to see for us here at this very point. At this point, go to Isaiah chapter 53 and we will just hear <clears throat> how Philip, I think, would have presented it at least similarly, the gospel. Isaiah chapter 53 Uh, It's right after the Psalms and the Proverbs. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Isaiah 53. 53, um, Actually, on on my page, 52.13. We'll start just, there's there's some context here. Um, The ESV, if you have it, has a good section break here. Isaiah 52.13 is where we'll start, but it's connected to Isaiah 53. So the first section here, Isaiah 52, 13, notice what it says. Here's the beginning of the section. This is what is is being driven at at the end. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Very positive, 
uplifting. Good. This is, this is the goal. God is going to raise up and exalt his servant. Okay. But we would think maybe that the rest of the verses would be rose petals and daisies and pleasant, happy thoughts. However, the path that is described before this exaltation is extremely painful and serious. So that we have in the next verse, 5214, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So these, this path is through the physical breaking, the, the actual punishment or uh, whips or cords or whatever is said. This path for exalting of the servant comes with great pain, even, even marring of his figure. So that's the, that's the tenor of what is said. So in this, you already see how we can head down this negative path. Now, I'm going to summarize two sections. I'm going to read verse 1 through 6 and then say some words and then we'll read the rest and I'll say some more words. Verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him, that is God, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verses one through three tell us that the arm of Yahweh, the arm of the Lord is going to reveal a a young one, a, a young man, who is going to grow up before him. That's that's a picture of like being under God's tender care. There's this intimate relationship. He is accepted by him. In contrast to the people, the people are going to, on the other hand, though God, he's going to grow up before God. That is, be in his pleasure. He's going to be despised and rejected by the people. And gloriously, in this rejection, we get verses four through six. We are told that the sorrow and grief he faced was not his own. The reason he faced those things is not because of himself, but for us. It is for our transgression that he was crushed and pierced. We are the sheep who had gone astray, not him. He grew up before God. It is he who bears our chastisement, he who takes our wounds, and upon whom is our iniquity laid. That is why we, God's people, have acceptance, have peace with God. Somebody else who pleased him, yet was despised by men. Which brings us to our verse. There's the near context, and you have chapter or verse 7 and 8. Now, <clears throat> I should just say that here it reads slightly different. Like I said, what was quoted in Acts is from the Greek translation of this text. Your English, I don't know of a, a single you know, major version that, you, that uses the Septuagint to translate those places where the New Testament quotes like this, it's all from the Hebrew. So your English version in the Old Testament is translated from the Hebrew. And so the, the New Testament is translated from the Greek. And so there's, a, there's difference in the English words that are used. But if you put them side by side, you look at this section, and then you see what's quoted. 
it's, it's transparently communicating the same message, although you need to use different words if you're translating from two different languages. Hopefully that makes sense to you if you've learned a little bit of Spanish or some other language. But for simplicity's sake, since it's transparently the same message, I'm just going to work from here what you can see in front of you. In verse 8 or 7, I'm going to read the whole section so you have it all in your mind, 7 through 12. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, uh, and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered since he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth, yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors, yet He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Okay, there's a lot of text there, but let's cover it bit by bit and hear what the Ethiopian eunuch would have said. We were already told that from that scripture, he proclaims Jesus. The answer is already given. Who is it? Is it Isaiah? No, it's Jesus. That's who it is. It is fulfilled in his past. So all that I'm going to proclaim to you is accomplished already, just as Philip would have said. And he's just going to draw the lines to the gospel because, you know, at this time, there's no written New Testament at all. It's just the eyewitness testimony of those who have been appointed as apostles and prophets and those who... Many others had seen the resurrection. You know, Paul, even later in his life, says, you go ask the 500 plus people who were there. Just go ask them yourself if you think there's no resurrection. So here, what we see is that it is Jesus who is the lamb led to the slaughter. You can think about his trial where he gives no answer to Herod or to to. Pontius Pilate, or to, yeah, to Herod, excuse me, not Pontius Pilate. Jesus is the one who was humiliated for us. It was justice that was taken away from him. It was a phony sham of a trial. He did not deserve what he got. The result of the injustice that was given to him by the rulers of Israel, by Pontius Pilate, by Herod, And the Romans, all of those injustices caused him to be cut off from the land of the living. Perfectly prophesied in the past. He was crucified on a cross. He was cut off and therefore he was cut off from his generations as the text says. He was cut off from the land of the living since he was cut off from his generations. They can't give an answer. They don't exist. So Isaiah is prophesying about Christ who would be crucified. And further in this text, if Philip were to keep on going, because he began in that text, but it keeps going. He says, okay, yet it was, uh, it was with the, he was with the wicked in his grave and with the rich man in his death. Both of these things are fulfilled. Him being hung on a cross and laid in the grave says that the unrighteous die. He died like the rest of the wicked. That's exactly what the Muslims say. God would never do that to his prophet. It is uh, a truth. He, He died on our behalf. 
he had to die like a wicked man. But we remember that he was also, as amazing as this is, buried in a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea is the one who asked Pilate for the body. And then he had a new sepulcher that was very labor intensive that was cut from the rock. And Jesus was laid in that rich man's tomb. So he was both identified with the wicked and also with the rich in his death. Verse, verse 10 and 11 says, and this is where it really turns because this is all negative and, and now it flips and becomes positive like many of the Psalms do. We find out indeed that the reason he was crushed is this is the definite plan of Yahweh. He intended to crush his son, Jesus. That's why he died. And further, Isaiah even says it is out of the son. It is out of the Christ desire that he offers his soul for a guilt offering. He willingly goes in obedience to the father and therefore is a fragrant aroma, a pleasing sacrifice to God. Therefore, although verse 8 says that he was cut off from his generations, most interpreters take that not as the current generation that he's with, but his offspring. I, I take that position too, although you could argue both ways. And it makes sense because the parallel that is given is yet, what's going to happen? He offers a fragrant aroma and then he's going to see all of his offspring. He's cut off from them for a second and then he sees them and then he prolongs his days. This is the preaching, even from Isaiah, of the resurrection. He sees all of his offspring. That's us. That's those who trust in Christ. And he does so and he prolongs his days because he was raised to immortality on our behalf. Jesus did not stay cut off. He rose again, immutable, immortal life. And therefore he is dividing the spoil with the many. That is just to say the reward that he received is seeing his generations and everlasting life bearing because he bore the sins of the many. He did not die because of what he did. He died for us. Now, I want you to key in on verse 11 because there's, it's super important and it'll connect us to the, all of the message of 53 and, and boil it down. And hopefully it, it makes sense to you of, of how the gospel is preached in the New Testament, once Christ has come, I, I want you to see this so that you might understand the preaching of Philip and the rest of the New Testament, <clears throat> at least in one, one specific area. So, verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. Okay, then it says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, the righteous one my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Now go down to verse 12 at the very end. He bore the sins of many, their transgressions. So those are the many. The many are made righteous. So the, the communication here is so clear. It's beautiful. Knowledge of him. Who? The righteous one. Knowledge of this suffering servant, God's servant, Knowledge of him is the way whereby the many are made righteous. That's justification by faith alone. That is penal substitutionary atonement. There's two terms which we should have a grasp of. We should have a grasp of. So most of us are familiar with preaching of the cross. There's a more technical term that you should know. The acronym is PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement. Penal, that is Christ, goes to death as the penalty required for sins against God. Why does he have to die? That's the penalty you and I deserve for breaking God's law. 
Secondly, substitutionary. God's wrath burned against Christ who committed no sin because he himself became our substitute under our penalty. He was our penal substitution. He stood in our place under God's justice against our sin. And that action, penal substitution, is what makes atonement. That's an old, old-fashioned word that just simply means what he has done, because it satisfies God's justice, it, it reconciles us to God and gives us peace with him. It's, it's the only way for the parties to come back and be at harmony with one another. Without that penal substitution that Christ does, there's no reconciliation with God. You will pay for your own penalty forever in the lake that burns forever and ever. It is Christ who dies so that we might be reconciled to God. Now, the second part is double imputation. You need to remember this. Double imputation. You'll see it right there in verse 11. The many are to be accounted righteous. And I like the way this is said and translated because it really is an accounting term. What is imputation? Not a word that we use all the time. Essentially, it's just to say that there is a transfer of debt or credit from one account to another. Debt or credit from one to another. And in this case, it's double. The preaching of the cross is a preaching of double imputation. And you see this all throughout chapter 53. The righteous one has a positive balance before God. God's smile is upon him. He had done no deceit. There's no wrong at all done. Everything is righteousness in terms of Christ. His account is full toward God. Such that those who trust in him, those who, are, who have knowledge and have believed in this one are made, are, we say justified. That is, they have had the positive balance transferred to their account such that it not only gets them up to uh, level, ju- uh, their, their debt is removed, now they have riches. They have all of what Jesus has, a positive, full account, and they are declared as righteous. Conversely, that's, that's the one imputation to us, Christ to us. I should do it this way, right? So Christ to us. And then us, we have a negative balance. We have an insurmountable debt, a debt that we could never pay off if we had 10,000 times 10,000 lifetimes. And, and I could enumerate forever. And our wickedness is transferred to his account. That's why it said that he bore our sins. He, uh, what was laid on him was our debt. And what fell upon him, Romans chapter 5, is God's fierce wrath against sin. He takes our sin. We get his righteousness through his penal substitutionary atonement. That is the gospel. That is the gospel that we have nothing to give to God, only our sins. We have nothing to give to God, only our debts. And it is only through trusting in this one that we have all of God's riches. Christ gets our debt, we get his riches. He gets our wickedness, we get his uprightness. It's a fantastic deal. By nothing we've done, but only faith in him. And you say, can it get any better? For the eunuch, it can. It gets even better, you believe it or not. Now, it's only God's sweet providence that this is happening. Of all the books that this man has, it happens to be Isaiah, which is the one place where eunuchs are specifically addressed, just a couple chapters. So what I think is that 
he began in that text, and he might wrap it up in chapter 56. Go to chapter 56, because it will, Isaiah chapter 56, because this is the one place that I know of in the New Testament addressing the promise of the gospel to the eunuch and the foreigner, of which he is both. So, Philip, I'm going to read 1 through 8, and then I'll, I'll wrap up that way. 56. Thus says Yahweh, keep justice and do righteousness. Listen, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness will be revealed. Don't you think this is the exact chapters that Paul is pulling from? I mean, we know it's Hebrews or uh, it's Habakkuk chapter two, which is directly quoted. But this is the same language of Romans. The righteousness of God that is revealed is specifically named Christ Jesus. That's what salvation is. Knowledge of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Blessed is the man who does this. And the son of man who holds fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. So there's there's this there's this fear, and that that there would be the ongoing experience of Old Testament converts. Old Testament converts still are separated by a wall that divides them between Jew and Gentile uh, that is enshrined in the law. It cordons off Jewish ethnicity into the people of God. But there is coming a day, Isaiah says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who, who Sabbaths, who chooses the things that please me and holds fast my covenant. And in, in, in other words, don't get tripped up on this language as, as if works save. It's not the discussion. The point of that is there's no other way to conceive for an Old Testament saint what obedience to God is, what faithfulness to God is, other than these, these specific actions that are identified. Okay, this is just talking about one who trusts in God and, and serves him, the place of the eunuch. To the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses the things that please me and holds fast my covenant, I will give him in my house and within my walls. Where's God dwell? The temple. Good answer. A monument and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them, him or them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be, a call, shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Yahweh God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Oh my gosh, this is so good. The Messiah Jesus who brings God's salvation, does so by providing us a perfect righteousness and obeying all that the Lord commands. Salvation on our part is received by faith. And um, in this Jesus, um, because of all of his work on our ungodly behalf. Now, it is only his work that gives us a righteous standing before God and something we profane if we try to add to it. Works are the necessary fruit of faith in Christ. They never are part of the foundation. I say that again. <clears throat> this is just me summarizing before I, I really bring home 56. Works 
are the fruit of faith in Jesus Christ, but they never contribute to the foundation. They, they never contribute to our justification. <clears throat> and because of what Christ has done, Philip could say to the eunuch, who was barred from the old temple system and always would be, is brought into the new temple through the body of Christ. He is brought into the new temple by a righteousness, not his own. The law corned him off so that he couldn't enter in, but he has entered into Christ by faith. He has been joined to the Messiah, and therefore he can enter into the new temple. That is the people of God. He now can enter into God's house and even has a memorial there. He has a, an everlasting name. The only way that this is possible for any of us, especially to the foreigner and to the eunuch and all those who are separated from either something that happened to them or at birth or whatever, have, have now had this dividing wall of the law torn down in the gospel. And we see clearly what was always the case. The church, Israel, true Israel, is all of God's people, the elect, those who are united to Christ. And it's revealed that God has one people from all nations, not Jew and Gentile, slave, free, Greek, Barbarian, Scythian, whatever. We're all one in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. It's because of redemption in him that we can be brought to God's mountain, that all of our offerings and our prayers are accepted. It is along with verse 8 that we see that the Lord is going to gather the outcasts of Israel in a future time. This he does. We see that in Acts chapter 2. And secondly, he says, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Who are those? I submit to you that this is what Jesus was saying in John chapter 10, 15 and 16. He says, and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock, one shepherd. Not the church in Israel. Not any sort of division, not black, white. No divisions among us. We are all one in Christ Jesus. It is through him and his sacrifice that we enter into all the promises of God and receive them even those which only belonged to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Those who are banished can come near and find full acceptance, reconciliation, and peace with God in and through Jesus Christ. That is our message. You, sinner, come to Christ, and you have all of God's promises. You'll be part of his one body, his one people, and you will receive full acceptance with God. And you will have an everlasting name, and you shall live forever in God's presence.